It's a blessing to be with you all this morning. My name is Chris Thompson. I'm the campus pastor here at Grace Bible Creekside. And I'm excited to continue in our series in the book of Acts. I got a question for you. How many of you guys have ever had a change of plans? It's met with a few laughs because it's, it's reality, right? We all have had change of plans at some point in many ways, many times throughout life. And sometimes those change of plans could be something pretty small and seemingly insignificant, like, okay, change of plans for the evening. Or other times it's kind of massive on the grand scale of life, like I thought I was going to be a landscape architect when I was in high school, and so now I'm a pastor. Um, But there's a lot of different uh, ways that God will oftentimes, in our lives, in in the course of our lives, he will move us down unexpected paths, and he desires for us to be keenly aware of what he's doing. Truly, we need to be confident that he is sovereign and that he has a plan and a purpose. Sometimes when we move down these uncharted courses, he desires for us to look around and see what he might be doing. How do we respond, though, in those times that we have a change of plans? How What's our normal response? Is it one of... Uh, disappointment. Sometimes it's maybe frustration. Maybe it's even anger. I want to challenge us this morning that to, to take hold of what God may be doing in you and around you for his purposes, because truly he can be trusted. He's sovereign. He's in control. And he's leading down you down this path that you did not expect, did not anticipate for a reason. 15 years ago, my wife Erica and I left College Station, sadly. We, uh, we, were moved, we moved to Dallas to go to seminary. It was that summer of 2000 that we got invited to go on what we thought was the trip of a lifetime. With Irving Bible Church, they were going to go on a two-and-a-half-week mission trip to Romania and Russia. It's going to be all expenses paid. We got invited to go. It was going to be pretty epic. Well, I was particularly stoked about this trip because Russia had always been this kind of I had this crazy fascination with Russia. Well, first of all, I grew up at the end of the Cold War, so there's all that spy lore and, you know, espionage and the Iron Curtain. Of course, you know, um, seeing the, the Berlin Wall fall and Reagan, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall, all that kind of stuff. I mean, that was just too great, you know, when you're a kid and you're just seeing this massive country on the other side of the world. And then even on top of the, the whole communist era, the Bolshevik Revolution, and prior to that, Nicholas and Alexandra, and this shroud of mystery about what really happened to Anastasia, and all these kinds of things. I was just fascinated by this world. And so I was really excited to get to go to Russia. Well, we go on the trip, and not very long into the very first leg of the trip, Erica got sick. Just minutes within our very our first flight from the United States to the UK and not just Erica but something went through the whole almost the whole team many many people were getting sick throughout the week and it was awful and for for Erica though she just she could not get food down she couldn't keep anything down it was it was really bad and she was not getting better many people were in and out of you know, being sick and then able to go back out. But for her, she was just not. It was not happening. Nothing was working. IVs, treatments, all these kinds of things. 
So at some point during the week, we had to make a decision. Are we going to move on to Russia with the rest of the team where actually the level of healthcare was going to decrease because we were going deeper into the interior? Or would we change our plans? And we finally had to make that decision. When the rest of the team left to go to Russia, we changed our flights and headed, started our trip back to the United States. We were certainly bummed. We were disappointed. We didn't really know what was going on. And oftentimes, whenever those kinds of circumstances happen, in the sense that, uh, you know, maybe you're on a mission trip or maybe you're, you're really engaged in what God is trying to do, you're kind of met with this confusion. Like, what, God, what, what did you have in mind here? I, I don't understand why would you would alter these plans. We're trying to do your work, God. Why, why, are you, why are you shifting our gears here? Well, that might have been potentially the case for Paul as well. As we go to Acts chapter 16, I want to invite you guys to turn there and go to verse 6. For Paul as well, he kind of gets bounced around a little bit. And he is forced to kind of have to review his expectations. In verse 6 it says this, And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. Let me show you guys a map of this region, of this area of the world. So if you see that large purple mass that is now modern-day Turkey, you'll see the word Asia, and uh, that certainly means the continent of Asia, but also means that particular region of what is now modern-day Turkey. And uh, what's happening is when they, they were going through this area, it says the Holy Spirit forbade them from speaking the word in Asia. That's really peculiar. Why would God prevent them from sharing the gospel? I'm sure that Paul was kind of like, what, what is going on here? I'm, I, I am a church planner. I am a missionary. I'm on mission. God, what's going on? Then it goes on to say this in verse 7. It says, And when we had come up to Myasia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. Again, really weird. Paul's trying to make his way up into Bithynia, which you can see is the northern part of modern-day Turkey along the Black Sea. But they're met with not just being, not, they couldn't just not speak the word, but they couldn't even go there. They couldn't even get there. Roadblock after roadblock, for whatever reason, the Lord himself was preventing them from both preaching the word and from going to where they thought they were supposed to go. Well, we see that God has a plan. He has a purpose and Paul just holds on to that. Because in verse 8 it says, So passing by Maesia, they went down to Troas. Troas, if you see the, the northwest peninsula of where it says Asia, that would be modern-day Turkey. Troas is a port city in that region. And so what happens next is awesome. The way that God is working to position them so perfectly for what happens next. Verse 9. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately he sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So what we have here is Paul, Silas, Timothy, were all in, uh, in Troas, that port city, along the Aegean Sea. Then Paul gets a vision from the Lord to go to Macedonia. Well, Macedonia is across the sea in what is now modern-day Greece. 
So Paul is perfectly positioned to then respond to this vision and go directly to the region that God is calling him to. Once they're in Macedonia, though, where do you go? Well, Paul just goes to the most populated place he can think of, and they they end up in Philippi, which is a leading city in Macedonia. It's a Roman colony, and they begin to settle in to try to do some ministry there. Now it says... In verse 12, we remained in the city some days. Let me set this up real quick before we get any deeper into this. You see, Paul had this kind of mode of operation, this standard plan that he would attack each city and he would go directly to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he would dialogue with the Jews, particularly the Jewish men in that that, uh, synagogue. And he would dialogue and talk about the realities of how Christ had come. Messiah was here. The law that they held so firmly to was simply a tool to lead us, to lead them to Christ. But Christ had come. Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world, the ultimate sacrifice for our sins. Many of the Jews would respond in faith and they would believe in Christ, but some would get hostile and they would start a scene and Paul would get kicked out. He'd kind of move on to the next thing. But that was his normal mode of operation every time he would go into a new city to establish a church. He'd go to the Jews first. Well, here he is in a whole new place, whole new territory, a whole new world. He's in Europe now. And I see it is profound in the way that God was challenging him, surely, in the way that he would set up these roadblocks. He would actually prevent him from going deeper into Asia or north into Bithynia because he wanted him to take the gospel to new places. He wanted, to take the, he wanted Paul to take the gospel into Europe. I want to continue to challenge us and sharpen us this morning with this thought of when sometimes the course that we thought we were going to be going on, we thought we were going to go here and do this, And we ended up going there to do that. Recognize God is at work. In his sovereign plan, he's charting our course. He is mapping out our path so that we might interact with and intersect with people that we never would have imagined. Unlikely people that would have ever come across our path had we gone somewhere else. He wants us to be able to share the good news of Jesus Christ with specific people at a specific time, in a specific place. So be confident in that any time your expectations go unmet and where he takes you is completely foreign and unimagined. He wants to use you as he's using Paul and his team. All of Paul's expectations are about to get blown out. He gets to Philippi. There is no synagogue. Typically, it took about basically 10 men to, uh, to go into a, uh, uh, to form a synagogue in a city. 10 Jewish men. So when he gets to Philippi, there's no synagogue. Chances are pretty good that there's just not enough Jews that desire to form a synagogue. It's also possible there's just not enough resources. It's also possible that it's because of some sort of political oppression or some sort of Uh, antagonism towards them forming a synagogue in this particular city. So as a result, 
what, what, uh, what happened is because there's either lack of people, lack of resources, or lack of permission, the anticipated next thing would be that there would be maybe some people that would gather informally outside the city wall so as to not cause a stir in the, with the pol- politics of the day, but down by the river. And the river would provide for them the necessary kosher flowing water that they could have their washing rituals and their baptism ceremonies. So Paul then supposes, along with the others, that, hey, well, since there's no synagogue and we can't find this formal gathering of Jews, let's go outside that there might be maybe a place of prayer. And so we pick up on, in verse 13. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. So now, again, Paul's normal mode of operation, go to the synagogue, speak to the men, the Jewish men. All of those things are just kind of getting shattered, all those expectations. But Paul's going with the flow, and I love that about him. He's just going where the Spirit leads him. He finds there by the river a gathering of women. So this is, again, kind of atypical of what he's used to, but nonetheless, he he, gains, he, he sets down to share the gospel with them. And Luke identifies one in particular, one lady that was there. Her name was Lydia. She's from the city of Thyatira. Thyatira is back over in Asia, and she's here in Europe, in Philippi. It says something more about her. She, it says that she was a seller of purple goods. Now, all of us instinctively kind of know that purple is associated with royalty, especially back then. So, We can know some things about Lydia just with just this brief description about her trade. She was probably pretty wealthy. She's in a lucrative trade, meaning that she has means. It's also very possible that since she has a house in Philippi, yet Luke also mentions the fact that she's from Thyatira, we could kind of equate her with a high-powered fashionista of today's world. Has a house in New York, house in Paris, living the good life. She's got all kinds of wealth, all right? So that's kind of what you can envision with Lydia. But what's so cool about her is that what it says next, she was a worshiper of God. You see, Lydia is a woman of means, so therefore she could have easily worshipped her own lifestyle, her own status, her own financial, monetary independence, but yet she's rejected that. She's also rejected the paganism of her day and the pluralism of her culture, She has chosen to identify herself with the one true God. But then what happens next is also very, very significant. It says the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. This is interesting. She has identified herself as a worshiper of God, yet the Lord opens her heart to see Christ through the words of Paul. I dare say that we might be in some of the same situations that Paul is in, in our place in the world. Bryan College Station. Most of the people here, it seems like, believe in God. In fact, when I was a freshman at A&M, I was involved in crew, and we would have this event every Friday afternoon at 2 o'clock called Blitz. And what we would do is we would meet at All Faiths Chapel, we'd circle up, we'd pray, then we'd go out in twos, all around campus to share the gospel. We would find people hanging out by Saul Ross, sitting on a park bench, maybe reading. We'd go to Simpson Drill Field. People would be, have a 
picnic blankets spread out watching the lacrosse team. We'd go to Rudder Fountain. We'd find people in the MSC all over the campus. We would sit, we'd engage with them, we'd talk about life and faith and God and all these kinds of things. And I don't ever remember, and all the times that I did this, any time that I really, that I, I don't ever remember finding somebody that did not believe in God. That was, it's just kind of par for the course around these parts. That most people believe in God, but what we had the privilege and opportunity to do in those moments of just talking and kicking around these ideas is we got to connect the dots. Many people believed in God, but they did not know Christ. And we were able to lead them to know that God, yes, he exists like you believe, but there's so much more. He's actually sent his son, Jesus Christ, to live the perfect life, life that we could not. And he died a death, even death on the cross, in our place as our substitute for the forgiveness of our sins so that we could have a relationship with God, so that we could be in right standing before God, truly so we could have everlasting life in Christ Jesus. This is good news. This was always a blessing to get to share this with people and help them to make sense of it all. So that's our challenge for many of us. We know people around us, good people, sweet people, that know God or they believe in God, yet they have never made the connection to what God has done for us and the grace that we can receive in Jesus Christ. I want to challenge us with that. I want us to think deeply on that, that we have people all around us, maybe neighbors, coworkers, even family that we might see even this week as we sit around the Thanksgiving table. Might we be emboldened to share the truth of the gospel with them that they might be able to take that step to know Christ, Christ crucified for the salvation of their souls. Well, Lydia responds to the gospel. Lydia receives Christ, and not just her, but her whole household responds, and they're all at once baptized. They don't waste a minute. And so we see in this account, convert number one on European soil, God is drawing to himself unlikely people through an unlikely course, but God is using Paul, Silas, Timothy, even Luke, to reach people that Paul would never have he would never have seen or known had God not roadblocked him and diverted his course. So one thing that I want to encourage us with, as Paul is met with all kinds of unmet expectations, as Paul's expectations, his, his thought was that he's going to go to the Jews. In fact, that's even evident at the beginning of this chapter in his meeting up with Timothy. He had Timothy circumcised so as to be respectful in their ministry to and towards the Jews. Well, he's on in a whole new terrain, areas that he never thought or imagined that he'd be in. So I want to challenge us with that. As God reroutes, and oftentimes he does, charts new courses for us, we want to hold loose our expectations, but hold firm to the mission, the calling that all of us in Christ Jesus have received, the calling to make disciples of all nations, of all people. So hold loose those expectations, hold firm to the mission. Let's move on. After 
after convert number one, Lydia, has come to the Lord, we see in verse 16 that as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. You see, what was going on here was that um, uh, she was, this poor slave girl was being exploited for the fact that she had a demon oppressing her truly. It was, it was possessing her. And these uh, and this demon somehow had, you know, obviously it's supernatural abilities to maybe tell fortunes or something. And these slave owners were utilizing that. They were leveraging that to make money off this poor girl. Well, it goes on to say that she followed Paul and us, crying out, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. While that message may have been true, the problem was not with the message. It was valid. The problem was with the messenger. You see, you just really don't want a demon-possessed slave girl as your campaign manager. It's just not good PR. So Paul, he gets, you know, I mean, he lets this go on for quite some time. It says for many days. But after a while, he became greatly annoyed, verse 18 says. And he turned and he said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it did that very hour. Well, see, what we have here is... Uh, this uh, situation where this girl was healed from demon oppression. And in almost every other instance of, of accounts of people being healed from demons being uh, taken over their body, that they, after that, come to Christ. And so we can extrapolate that that's what happened to this poor slave girl, that after being healed, she comes to know Jesus, I'm sure with a heart filled with gratitude. Convert number two in Europe. Convert number two in Philippi. Verse 19, though, goes on to, to share what happens after Paul casts out this demon. It says, after the uh, owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and grabbed, dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. You see, as they saw that the demon left, so went their prophets. These guys were livid that their profit source was eliminated. And they wanted it take it out of Paul's hide. So they're going to exact their brand of revenge and they're going to take him, drag him in the marketplace before the rulers. In verse 20, it says, when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. These guys play the race card and they do it quite effectively because they get the whole crowd really stirred up. In verse 22, the crowd joined in attacking them And the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he, the jailer, put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Okay, well, these guys, they're in trouble. This is is not the Hilton, ladies and gentlemen. These guys had just got beaten, and I could imagine that that their backs were pretty bruised up, if not bleeding, cut up, really tender, raw. It's a bad situation. And if you can imagine their feet being in the stocks, their backs are probably up against the hard, cold, rough, gross prison floor. And so they're, I'm sure, in agony. And when they get placed in this prison, they're placed in the innermost cell. I'm thinking that they're thinking this could be a while. 
we could be in prison indefinitely. Yet, what happens next is profound. They respond in such a way that glorifies God and God uses them in a powerful way. I want to challenge us again. What kind of mindset do we have whenever God charts our course and it goes down a path that is really difficult and uncomfortable? And even for many of us, it, it's dark. It's hard. It's, it's just absolutely not where we want to be. How do we respond to that? In what ways do we respond to the course that God is moving us down? Do we respond with bitterness? Do we respond with joy? Do we respond with confusion? Do we respond with hope? How do we respond? For Paul and Silas, it says in verse 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. I love their perspective. You see, this isn't the first time, nor is this the last time, that Paul is going to have that kind of attitude and just pure joy flowing out of him. About nine, ten years later, Paul actually writes to this church in Philippi in his letter to the Philippians, but he writes it from a Roman prison. And he says this, he says, guys, do not worry about my situation. In fact, in fact, My circumstance in this prison is actually turning out for the greater good of the gospel. The people outside the prison, they are getting more emboldened to share the gospel with more passion and more vigor. And for me inside the prison, the whole palace guard, the whole imperial guard knows why I'm here. They know that I'm here for the cause of Christ. And because I'm here for the cause of Christ, they get to know Jesus Christ. So it's actually kind of an opportunity Uh, that I would never have had to meet people, to know people, to share Christ with people that Paul, in particular, would never have had the, the opportunity. His path would never have intersected. But that's exactly what God wants from us. He wants us to see and recognize he is charting our course so that we might reach specific people at a specific time in a specific place. Hold loose to those expectations but hold firm to that calling. Paul and Silas are praying and singing hymns to God. The other prisoners are listening to him. I think that is absolutely incredible in the way that these guys probably think, wow, either they're off their rocker or they have something unbelievable, indescribable that I want. Because what happens next Verse 26 says this, And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. So they see this miracle just unfold right before them. All of their their shackles fell off. The stocks fell apart. The prison doors swing open. Unbelievable. Yet we also know too about this guy, the jailer, Verse 27 says, When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. Let's talk about him for just a second. Typically, in this context, a jailer was probably a former centurion, former soldier, middle-class guy that is duty-bound, and he's going to try everything he can to do his job. 
He is all about making sure that these prisoners are secure. Now, he also knows, as is standard for the day, that he is bound to keep these guys secure by penalty of his own life. As we see in Acts chapter 12, when Peter got released by the angel, Herod then took the guards, the prison guards, he had them cross-examined and summarily executed. So what we know about guards back then is that they had to do their job or it was their own neck on the line. This jailer recognizes it as well. And he thinks, oh man, he sees the prison gates all open and he just makes the mental assumption, they're all gone. Everybody has escaped through the means of this earthquake. And, um, and so he takes out a sword, planning to fall on his own sword, saving himself the humility of public execution and save Rome the trouble. But I love what happens next. Paul says this, he cried out with a loud voice, do not harm yourself for we are all here. What's really significant about that is it's not just Paul and Silas that stick around. I mean, all the gates open up, all, all the prisoners could have walked, they could have totally bolted. But because of the way that Paul and Silas responded to their difficult circumstance with prayer, with singing, with joy just oozing out of them, these prisoners are locked in. They're engaged. They're not locked in as in their chains are off, but their attention is locked in on Paul and Silas and what they have to say. It gives Paul and Silas an incredible platform to share with not just the other prisoners, but the jailer himself says, he's blown away. And he says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Paul responds and says, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. In fact, the jailer responds to the gospel. His whole household responds to the gospel. They're all baptized. They don't waste a minute. And then in verse 34, it says, he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. I love this story. I love this account. And what we can see through it is that God is drawing to himself people unlikely converts that Paul would never have ever seen or known had God not roadblocked him back in Bithynia, back in Asia, and sent him across the Aegean Sea into a whole new land, a whole new territory, and began planting the seeds of the gospel, establishing the very first church here in Philippi on European soil. The Jews, I should say, I should say specifically the Pharisees, kind of around this time frame, they used to have a prayer of blessing that they would pray every morning when they would get up. And it would say something like this. It'd say, I thank thee, God, that I am a Jew and not a woman, slave, or Gentile. And if you could, Ryan, if you could go to that slide with Galatians text on it, I want to read to you guys, again, the passage from uh, Galatians chapter 3 that Chris just read to us a moment ago. It says this, So in Christ Jesus you are all children of God through faith. For all of you were baptized into Christ, I'm sorry, all, for all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Look at this. What's the composition of the Philippian church? 
as God leads Paul to preach the gospel to specific, specific individuals in this specific time, in these specific ways. A wealthy businesswoman, an impoverished slave girl, and a middle-class Gentile jailer. You see, God is communicating something to maybe Paul and Silas and the other Jews of that day, but really to all of us, that there is no one outside of God's grasp. There is no one outside of the bounds of where he wants to take the message and the hope of Jesus Christ. You see, neither Jew nor Gentile, neither man nor woman, neither slave nor free, everyone has access to the gospel. And it does not matter what socioeconomic group you belong to either. We've got the entire spectrum from a wealthy businesswoman to an impoverished slave girl and a middle-class jailer. It does not matter. And so as you move about your life and as God directs your course, I want us to think about who God might have you reach in your unlikely circumstances at that unlikely time, but for the cause of Christ. He has you there to reach a specific person at a specific time in a specific way. He wants to work through you. Won't you let him? Won't you be eager to see why he might have you going down the path that you're on? The application, again, I want to just drive this home. Hold loose your expectations. Hold firm to your mission. Let me close with sharing about Russia and the opportunity that that I had. So God totally closed the doors for us to go into Russia back in 2000. Erica was sick. We had to return home. We were, you know, that was disappointing to say the least. But I believe God had a plan in that, not just in that day, and there's lots of stories that I could share with you. But nine years later, I was sitting at a Starbucks up in Richardson, sitting uh, with a bunch of friends of mine from our home group, a bunch of guys, and we were talking about our summer plans. One of the guys, one of my buddies, his name is Dean Reed, he pipes up and he says, well, hey, I'm going to Russia. And I said, what? Of course, I'm locked in on him because, and all of us were kind of like, whoa, that was weird because that's not your typical taking the kids to Disney, taking the wife to Cabo kind of summer vacation plans. You're going to Russia? Like, what are you doing? And so he can see the intensity and the excitement that I have in my eyes. And he starts to explain, he starts to describe, and he says, well, yeah, I'm going on this mission trip to Russia. And he looks at me, he said, do you, do you want to go? And I said, yeah, actually, I, I do. Within 24 hours, I was signed up on the trip, raised the funds, went on the trip. Dean and I had this incredible opportunity to go into a high school in a little village south of Voronezh called Novogremichinsko, where we got to share the gospel every single day with students in the high school. You guys, this is the Soviet Union, or the former Soviet Union. We were sharing the gospel in their classrooms, at their assemblies, over lunch. We'd, we'd play volleyball with them in the afternoons after school. We went to, we went to uh, dinners together. We would go to concerts together. And by the end of the week, six students prayed and received Christ as their Savior. It was absolutely amazing the way that God worked. 
And I have to say that God, you know, he altered our course at one point, but we were able to see a little bit in the way that God then took me there years and years later. So hold on to what God may be doing in our lives. Sometimes we may never know this side of eternity, what was up God's sleeve, why he happened to arrange certain circumstances or orchestrate certain events that would take us where we landed. But he is sovereign. He's in control. We can trust that he is leading us and guiding us down a path to be able to share the gospel with those that we may never have ever intersected. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the hope that we have in Christ. And we thank you for this account of the way that you established the church in Philippi. It's a wonderful account. And we see this beautiful picture of the way that you directed Paul and Silas and Timothy to go into Europe, to take the gospel into uncharted waters. We thank you, Lord, for the way that you do that in our lives as well. We pray that we would have the perspective, we would have the wherewithal to be able to see where your hand is leading and guiding and that we would look around for people that desperately need to know the truth of Jesus Christ in our midst. Lord, may we be used as your instruments to share the gospel with specific people in specific places at specific times foreordained by you. May you use us for your purposes for your glory. In Jesus Christ's name, amen. Well, thank you guys for being here this morning. I just wanted to say one quick thing. We could use some help in packing this thing up this morning, or I'm sorry, this afternoon. And so we invite you to stick around. For those of you guys that could help out in this room in particular, come find myself or Chris Taylor, who's running the soundboard in the back. We can kind of give you some instructions. You guys have a great week. Have a happy Thanksgiving. Go in God's grace.